Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Galatians and the Gospel. What do we learn from Paul's first epistle and some of his admirers along the way? This summer I was at the Southern Baptist Convention in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was part of a panel discussion with Baptist 21, similar to the one yesterday. And John Piper was sitting to my left, and early in our uh, conversation, he made a statement that just really uh, shook me, and yet I realized almost immediately the truth of what he said, and it's paraphrased like this with respect to the necessity of the true gospel. It is better to preach the right gospel with the wrong motives, Philippians 1, 15 through 18, than to preach the wrong gospel with the right motives, Romans 10 and Galatians 1, 8 and 9. In the former, Paul can celebrate, but in the latter, he calls for a curse. Now, granted, we would hope that we would preach the right gospel with the right motives. But Paul would say, preach it for the wrong motives. It's the right gospel. I can rejoice. Uh, Have right motives, but preach the wrong gospel. You need to be damned. That's how important it is for us to get the gospel right. Putting it in its context with respect to the Reformation, I want to uh, provide a lengthy quote from uh, J.I. Packer that I think is so profound and so well said. And again, it kind of sets the table for what I want to do this morning. I think you'll see in just a moment that what I do this morning flows really well from what James did last night in the sense that those churches that he quickly walked us through last night were the churches of Galatia. And uh, not very long after that, Paul is having to write a letter back like Galatians to them because amazingly they very quickly were being seduced and moving away from the true gospel. But here's what Packer says. Salvation, said the reformers, is by faith, man's total trust only, without our being obligated to work for it. It is by grace, God's free favor only, without our having to earn or deserve it. It is by Christ, the God-man, only, without there being need or room for any other mediatorial agent, whether priest, saint, or virgin. It is by Scripture only, without regard to such unbiblical and unfounded extras as the doctrines of purgatory and of pilgrimage, zip pilgrimages, the, the relic cult and papal indulgences as devices for shortening one stay there. And praise for salvation is due to God only without any credit for his acceptance of us being taken to ourselves. The reformers made these points against unreformed Rome, but they were well aware that in making them they were fighting over against Paul's battle in Romans, the beat he dealt with yesterday, and Galatians against works, and in Colossians against unauthentic traditions, and the battle fought in Hebrews against trust in any priesthood or mediation other than that of Christ. And note again, they were equally well aware that the gospel of the five onlys would always be contrary to natural human thinking, upsetting to natural human pride, and an object of hostility to Satan, so that destructive interpretations of justification by faith in terms of justification by works, as by the Judaizers of Paul's day and the Pelagians of Augustine's and the Church of Rome, both before and after the Reformation, and the Armenians within the Reformed fold and Bishop Bull among later Anglicans were only to be expected. So Luther anticipated that after his death, the truth of justification would come under fresh attack and theology would develop in a way tending to submerge it once more in error and in comprehension. And throughout the century following Luther's death, Reformed theologians with Socinians and other rationalists in their eye were constantly stressing how radically opposed to each other are the gospel mystery of justification and the religion of the natural man. For justification by works is, in truth, the natural religion of mankind and has been since the fall. Very, very profound and in 
insightful statement from J.I. Packard. Now, why is it that I want to restrict this morning uh, our study to the book of Galatians? And there are basically three reasons. One, it is likely Paul's first letter. Secondly, it is the only letter Paul writes with no opening word of commendation. He is so angry and upset with the Galatians, he has nothing good to say about them. Furthermore, the gospel is the dominant theme of this epistle. The word occurs 13 times in Galatians, but it occurs 11 times in chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 14. So Paul just jumps right into the theme of the gospel immediately and just keeps hammering it and hammering it and hammering it and hammering it. Furthermore, as I mentioned a moment ago, the churches that we walked through last night, uh, Acts 13 and 14, where Paul saw wonderful success in the midst of opposition, very quickly deserted the gospel that he had proclaimed. And so as a result of that, Paul's work was on the verge of being undone very, very quickly. And so for those reasons in particular, I think that Galatians is a good book for us to walk through and just simply see how Paul uh, baptizes the gospel and furthermore, how Paul then takes it back out and looks at different facets. In fact, I'm going to give you about, uh, and don't panic here, 27 to 29 different facets of the gospel that you can glean from Galatians 1 through Galatians 6. Now, along the way, I'm going to call on some of our friends, not those with whom we would disagree, but those that have been a blessing to us, those that have encouraged us. And just simply along the way, I'll raise the question, what is the gospel and I'll let different people give us their uh, perspective on it. In fact, we'll do it about uh, 11 times as I walk us through uh, these six chapters. For example, our friend Alistair Begg, what is the gospel? Here's the gospel in a phrase. Because Christ died for us, those who trust in him may know that their guilt has been pardoned once and for all. What will we have to say before the bar of God's judgment? Only one thing, Christ died in my place. That's the gospel. And I would point out that in Alistair's definition, you see both the objective reality of the gospel, but also the fact that there must be a subjective response to the gospel as well. John Piper, what's the gospel? I'll put it in a sentence. The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy that's the gospel now one of the other reasons i like galatians is because it was the favorite epistle of luther and we'll allow luther to provide some comments along the way in our study this morning as well but luther loved galatians so much he compared it to his wife in fact he said the epistle to the galatians is my dear epistle i have put my confidence in it it is my katie von bora basically he is comparing galatians to his wife and then in his commentary on Galatians, he says, and I quote, I have taken in hand in the name of the Lord yet once again to expound this epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians, not because I desire to teach new things or such as yet have not known before uh, since that by the grace of Christ, Paul is now thoroughly known unto you, but for that we have to fear lest Satan take away from us this doctrine of faith. And bring into the church again the doctrine of works and men's traditions. Wherefore, it is very necessary that this doctrine be kept in continual practice and public exercise, both of hearing, uh, what Mark Dever talked about so much yesterday, and reading. And although it be never well, uh, so well known, yet the devil, who rageth continually seeking to devour us, is not dead. Likewise, our flesh and old man is yet alive. Besides this, all kinds of temptations do vex and oppose us on every side so that this doctrine can never be taught, urged, and repeated enough. If this doctrine be lost, then is also the doctrine of truth, life, and salvation also lost and gone. If this doctrine flourish, then all good things flourish Religion, the true service of God, the glory of God, the right knowledge of all things which are necessary for a Christian man to know. Our brother Thabiti, what's the gospel? The gospel of good news of Jesus Christ is that God the Father who is holy and righteous in all his ways is angry with sinners and will punish sin. Man who disobeys the rule of God is alienated from the love of God and in danger of an eternal and agonizing condemnation at the hands of God. But God... 
uh, who is also rich in mercy because of his great love, sent his eternal son, born by the Virgin Mary, to die as a ransom, a substitute for the sins of rebellious people. And now, through the perfect obedience of the Son of God and his willing death on the cross as payment for our sins, all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, following him as Savior and Lord, will be one, saved from the wrath of God to come, two, declared just in his sight, three, have eternal life, and four, a very strong theme in Galatians, receive the Spirit of God as a foretaste of the glories of heaven with God himself. And then my own brief definition, the gospel is the good news, that God has provided salvation through Jesus Christ, substitutionary death and bodily resurrection, and as a gracious gift, it is to be received by personal faith and repentance through the work of the Holy Spirit. The gospel of salvation originates in God's sovereign grace, and it is experienced only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. So, with that as kind of an introduction and laying a foundation, Galatians and the Gospel, what do we learn from Paul's first epistle? 29 indicative truths and 13 imperative truths that follow from the indicative of the Gospel. Number one, the Gospel is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul jumps right into that in the very first verses of this letter. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. He's going to emphasize very strongly that the gospel is the act of revelation given to us by God, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so at the very beginning of Galatians, he wants to root the gospel in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, the gospel delivers us from the present evil age to the glory of God our Father. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And, and I love it when he uses the full majestic title, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to what end? To deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, our, will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. So it's rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It delivers us from the present evil age. Thirdly, there's only one gospel, and to depart from it is to be accursed or damned. I am astonished, verse 6, that you are so quickly doing what? Deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel not that there is another gospel. Of course, those of you that studied Greek, he uses the word heteros and alos, saying you've turned to a heterodox gospel, uh, which is, or an alos gospel, which is not a, another gospel. There is no other gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so here we go. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned. Let him be accursed. In fact, as we have said before, I'll say it one more time. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There is only one gospel, and to depart from it is to invite the most severe curse of God. Number four, the gospel is ours by divine revelation and not human imagination. Humans, in their natural reasoning, would have never come up with something like the gospel. Verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation. He then will even use the idea of revelation again with his fifth observation from chapter uh, 1, and that is this, the gospel is grounded... In a gracious election, verse 15, but when he uh, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so Paul wants us to understand very clearly that the gospel that we preach is something divinely revealed to us by God, and this gospel that we enjoy is the result of a gracious election. You find all of that, for example, in chapter 1. So let's back up again and ask the question, what is the gospel? Well, let's let Don Carson speak for a moment. He uses it within the grand redemptive storyline uh, that Ben referred to a couple of times yesterday. The gospel is intricately tied to the Bible storyline. 
you know, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Indeed, it is incomprehensible without understanding that storyline. God is the sovereign, transcendent, and personal God who has made the universe, including us, his image bearers. There's the theme of creation. But our misery lies in our rebellion, our alienation from God, which despite his forbearance, attracts his implacable wrath. There's the fall. But God, precisely because love is of the very essence of his character, takes the initiative and prepared for the coming of his son by raising up a people who, by covenantal stipulations, temple worship, systems of sacrifice and a priesthood by kings and by prophets, are taught something of what God is planning and what he expects. And in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4, uh, his son comes and takes on human nature. He comes not in the first instance to judge, but to save. There's the theme of redemption. He dies the death of his people, rises from the grave, and in returning to his heavenly Father, bequeaths the Holy Spirit as the down payment, that's Ephesians 1, and guarantee of the ultimate gift he has secured for us, an eternity of bliss in the presence of God himself, that's new creation, thus in a new heaven, and a new earth, the home of righteousness. The only alternative to all of this is to be shut out from the presence of this God forever in the torments of hell, what men and women must do before it is too late is repent, trust Christ. The alternative is to disobey the gospel. And then uh, in uh, what is the gospel from the Gospel Coalition Address, summarizing 1 Corinthians 15, he just reminds us the gospel is Christological, theological, biblical, apostolic, historical, personal, universal, and eschatological. And all of those different theological disciplines or theological areas derive naturally from a clear and correct understanding of the gospel. Back to Galatians. What do we learn about the gospel from Galatians? Number six, the gospel of grace and freedom is constantly in danger of being lost and must be fervently defended. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3 through verse 5. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they, what, might bring us into slavery to them. We did not yield in submission even for a moment that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I find it fascinating that he uses the phrase false brothers, and he points out that they had secretly slipped in to spy out our freedom. We talked about this so much yesterday. Our greatest dangers to healthy theological doctrine and to keeping the essence of the gospel and the truth of the gospel front and center doesn't come from the outside. It always arises from within. And it is from false brothers, brothers who aren't real, who slip into our fellowships and seek to spy out and distort, deceive and destroy the heart of Christianity, which is the gospel. Number seven, the gospel that saves Gentiles is the same gospel that saves Jews. Look at verse seven. On the contrary, when they, that is the pillars of Jerusalem, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me uh, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Very, very clear. The same gospel that saves Jews, saves Gentiles. There's no dual covenant in the Bible. That is a heresy. Whether it be taught by the liberals on the left or by a heretic like John Hagee on the right, it is a heresy to say that God saves Gentiles one way and God saves Jews another way. God saves all by the same way through faith in Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way. And Paul makes that crystal clear here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7 through verse 9. Number 8. 
There are ethical imperatives that follow naturally from the truth of the gospel. In verse 10, Paul notes a economic distinction that should be put away. Only they asked us to do this. Remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. We'll see also in verses 11 through 14 that there is no uh, ethnic distinction. This is where uh, Paul gives the look uh, to Peter. And I imagine it was about as bad as the one that Bar-Jesus got uh, last night uh, in Acts chapter 13. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, and I don't think necessarily James sent them, uh, because I think James and Peter were in agreement on what the gospel is. I just think he means they came down from Jerusalem. Uh, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, uh, he drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, Mr. Encouragement, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with, and he uses this phrase several times, the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? And, of course, he is now about to launch into the heart of his argument with respect to justification uh, by grace, through faith, apart from the works of the law, which leads us to our next observation, the number nine. The gospel is the good news that we are justified. A word, by the way, that occurs eight times uh, in uh, this particular book, justified by faith. Uh, the word faith will occur 21 times between chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 3, verse 26. 21 times. The gospel is the good news that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not the works of the law. Interestingly, six times in chapter 2 and 3, Paul will use this very strong phrase, the works of the law. In fact, the word law will occur no less than 29 times in the six chapters of Galatians. So in many ways, this may be the central thesis uh, of the entire book right here, the gospel is the good news that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not the works of the law. If you were here Thursday, I heard a wonderful testimony from one of our brothers who shared that uh, early in his life, uh, he was running uh, from God by trying to be good. Then later in his life, he was running away from God by trying to be bad. And, and both uh, runs will take you away from the gospel and I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, that is sadly true, and there's even a, a, a sadder component in all that, and that is this. Uh, when you're running away from God by being bad, you pretty much know that you're running away from God. But when you are running away from God by being good, you actually think you're running to God. When you run away from God by being good, you actually are deceived in thinking you're running to God. And I suspect that that situation is far more dangerous uh, than the other. And so he wants them to understand that goodness, uh, obedience to the law, works of the law are not the means whereby God justifies anyone. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified he is not justified, how? By the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. And, of course, justified, sometimes you've heard people say that justified means just as if I'd never sinned. That, that's okay. That's not complete. Uh, justification is just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I had always obeyed the law of God perfectly. We receive the full righteousness of Christ to our account, both what is called passive and active obedience. And so when God sees us, he sees us as he sees his dear son. And so we are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Number 10, 
In the gospel, we are identified with Christ in his work on the cross. This is where Paul gives a snapshot of union with Christ, which he develops far more extensively, of course, in a book like Ephesians. But one of those favorite verses of many of us in the Bible, I have been crucified with Christ. I am identified with him. I am united with him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, and by the way, for those of us who teach hermeneutics, uh, it's important to note that though the word flesh occurs repeatedly uh, throughout the book of uh, Galatians, it doesn't always have a negative connotation. Almost always it does, but not here. Here when he says, this is the life I live in the flesh, he just means this is the life I live in my body. The word uh, flesh here basically has the, the meaning of body. So the life I now live in my body, uh, in this life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, which leads me to my 11th observation. It is the love of Christ for sinners that is made evident in the gospel. I live this life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Luther on the gospel. We are sinners and thieves and therefore guilty of death and everlasting damnation. But Christ took all our sins upon him and for them died upon the cross. All the prophets did foresee in spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer, etc. That ever was before he being made a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world is now an innocent person and without sins. Our most merciful father seeing us to be oppressed, overwhelmed with the curse of the law, and so to be holden under the same that we could never be delivered from it by our own power, sent His Son into the world and laid upon Him all the sins of all men, saying, Be thou, Peter, that denier, Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer, that sinner who did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged upon the cross and briefly be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men. See, therefore, that thou pay and satisfy for them. Here now cometh the law and saith, I find him a sinner, and that such a one as hath taken upon him the sins of all men, and I see no sins but in him. Therefore, let him die upon the cross. And so he setteth upon him and killeth him. By this means the whole world is purged and cleansed from all sins, and so delivered from death and all evils. Chapter 3, number 12. We received the Holy Spirit mentioned 15 times in the book of Galatians. We received the Holy Spirit by faith in the gospel, the same Spirit who both justifies and sanctifies. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Were you just one day uh, doing good deeds, helping all ladies across the street, paying your taxes, not using profanity, uh, being a nice neighbor, reading your Bible, and all of a sudden, boom, here came the Spirit. No, no, no. You do not receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And now the word flesh has that negative connotation. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with Faith. And so we receive the Spirit by faith in the gospel, and it is the same Spirit that initiates the Christian life, and it is the same Spirit that sustains us throughout the Christian life as well. And Paul will have a whole lot more to say, as we all know about the Spirit, when he gets to chapter 5, observation 13. The gospel that saved Abraham in the past is the same gospel that saves us in the present. Verse 7, know then... That it is those of faith who are the sons, the descendants of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached that gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith, whether Jew or Gentile, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Observation 14. Relying on good works for salvation not only does not save, 
it actually curses. And Paul will use that word curse five times in verse 10 through verse 13. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, let me just stop and make a comment there. That verse, of course, is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. That verse also appears in Romans 1.17. It appears again in Hebrews 10.38. So four times in the Bible uh, we have the statement, the just shall live by faith. Now, I think most of us would agree, if God says something once, that is enough. If he says it two, no, three, no, four times, it must like kind of be important. And so four times, like the ringing of a bell throughout the Scriptures, the just shall live by faith. Number 15, the gospel then is the good news that Christ has redeemed us from the curse as our penal substitute. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He purchased us out of slavery from that curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Now, how in the world... You could read Galatians 3.13 and not come to the doctrine of penal substitution. I do not know. I think you would simply have to say Paul was wrong. Uh, Paul was misled. But it is as clear as what you read in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6. The Lord has laid up on him the iniquity of us all that he not only was our substitute, he also paid our penalty. And then again, he quotes from Deuteronomy 21.23, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit. How? Through faith. Number 16. The gospel is rooted in a covenantal promise that precedes the giving of the law. We'll just note verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make that promise void. Number 17, the law is good because it shows us our sin. Verse 19, why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture uh, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law is good because it shows us our sin. In fact, he takes it a step further. Number 18, the law is good in that it is our school teacher. And it leads us to trust Christ alone by faith alone for salvation. Look down at verse 24. So then, the law was our pedagogos, our guardian, our school teacher, our schoolmaster, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a pedagogos, a, a guardian, a schoolmaster, for in Christ Jesus, now he begins to develop the theme of sonship, you are all sons of God through faith. Observation number 19, the gospel of Jesus then, or the gospel of Christ, unites us to Christ where there is no racial, no social, no gender distinctions. We are all one in Him. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let me just make a quick side comment uh, in terms of theological categories. Uh, Verses 27 through 29 are soteriological. They are not ecclesiological. 
In other words, those who seek to use these verses with an egalitarian agenda, trying to promote, for example, women as senior pastors in local churches, simply are misusing the text and ignoring clearly the context. It has nothing to do with the officers or the leaders in a church. It has to do with our standing in Christ in the context of salvation. What is the gospel? Let's invite J.I. Packer back one more time. I formulate the gospel this way. It is information issuing in invitation. Uh, It is proclamation issuing in persuasion. It is an admonitory message embracing five themes. He's going to sound a little bit like Carson earlier with his five themes. First, God, the God whom Paul proclaimed to the Athenians in Acts 17, the God of Christian theism. Second, humankind, made in God's image but now totally unable Uh, to respond to God or to do anything right by reason of sin in their moral and spiritual system. Third, the person and work of Christ, God incarnate, who by dying wrought atonement and who now lives to impart the blessings that flow from His work of atonement. Fourth, repentance, that is, turning from sin to God, from self-will to Jesus Christ. And fifthly, new community a new family, a new pattern of human togetherness which results from the unity of the Lord's people in the Lord, henceforth to function under one Father as a family and a fellowship. William Tyndale, the wonderful uh, reformer, evangelion, euangelion, that which we call the gospel is a Greek word, it signifieth good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing, dance, and leap for joy. This gospel is all of Christ the right David, how that he has fought with sin, with death and the devil, and overcome them, whereby all men that were in bondage to sin, wounded with death, overcome of the devil, are without their own merits or deservings, loosed, justified, Restored to life and saved, brought to liberty and reconciled unto the favor of God and set at one with Him again, which tidings as many as believe, laud, praise, thank God, are glad, sing, and dance for joy. Chapter 4. The gospel is grounded in a Trinitarian theology. Just look at verse 4 through verse 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God, there's the Father, sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God, there's the Father again, sent the Spirit, there's the Spirit of His Son. You've got the Trinity right there in that simple phrase, but He even expands upon it. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. It is grounded in a Trinitarian theology. Secondly, or 21 uh, in chapter 4, secondly, the gospel of redemption in Christ results in our adoption as children of the heavenly Father. You are now sons of God by faith in Christ through the Spirit so that we can now call our God Daddy. Number 22, the gospel gives us a knowledge of God that frees us from enslaving rules and rituals. Verse 8, note how often he uses the word know here, formally. When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You were a bunch of idolaters. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, I love this, be known by God. Again, the initiative is always His. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. You've got all these rules and regulations that are extraneous to the Bible, that are foreign to the gospel. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And Then Paul's heart really begins to emerge with our 23rd observation. Faithful ministers will be passionate for the truth of the gospel, even if it results in anguish of heart and necessitates the strongest Rebuke, verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. Look at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 19, my little children. 
for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul was grieved. Paul was heartbroken. Last night when we talked about uh, the hard parts of ministry and uh, when uh, Ben had the statement made, don't, don't take it personally. And I understand the wisdom. I do. I, I do. I, there's got to, there is a sense in which you've got to be like a duck letting the water roll off your back. You've got to have on, you know, your full body armor and you just got to let it bounce off and move on and bounce off and move on and bounce off and move on. But the fact of the matter is, if you love your people, you're going to take it personally. Because it is personal. And I, I would argue quite strongly that Paul certainly took the Galatians' um, deserting of the gospel very personally. Extremely per- I mean, he is crushed. He's mad too. Uh, he is heartbroken and he's angry. And all that is welling up. And you can't read Galatians and not realize that Paul is like on the edge. I mean, he's about to go off the cliff and he's going to take the Galatians with him if he goes. I mean, that's where he is. And he would not have been the man that he was did he not care. In fact, when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he goes through all these things that have happened to him, at the very end he says, and above all this, the churches. Shipwrecked, beaten, whipped. Yeah, it wasn't a happy day, wasn't a good day, but you know, it's the churches. There's where I lose sleep. There's where I get the ulcers. There's where I have the anxiety attacks. There's where, because I care so deeply about the churches and the gospel. And so, yeah, don't take it personally, but it's unavoidable. Number 24, work salvation then leads to slavery and Mount Sinai, but gospel salvation leads to freedom and the new Jerusalem. Quick word again about hermeneutics. Uh, I think most of my colleagues would agree with me, but they have the right to be wrong. Um, An allegorical hermeneutic is not only dangerous, it almost always opens the door to heresy. You say, well, Paul uses an allegory. Yeah, one time, and he tells you he's doing it, okay? He actually uses the word allegory. I am speaking by way of allegory. In other words, I'm doing something I never do. I'm doing something that I would not encourage you to do. I'm just doing allegory for a moment as an illustration. Fine. Tell them you're allegorizing it by way or for the purpose of illustration, fine. But apply that hermeneutic throughout your reading of the Scriptures and you will go into all sorts of bizarre directions that will not be healthy for your church. Furthermore, you will model for them the wrong way to rightly handle the Word. And so Paul is very clear in what he is doing here. Just note verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women, uh, Sarah and Hagar, uh, are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, it bears children of slavery. That's Hagar. And Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, which is in slavery uh, with her children. But there's a Jerusalem that is above, and it is free, and she is our mother. Just drop down to verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the sons of the slave woman shall not inherit with the sons of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Work salvation leads you back to slavery in Mount Sinai, but the gospel leads you to freedom and the new Jerusalem. What is the gospel? Well, here's what Mark says. Here's what I understand the good news to be. The good news is that the one and only God who is holy made us in His image to know Him. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from Him, but in His great love... God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us has been exhausted. I love that part of it. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness if... We repent of our sins and trust in Christ. We are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. Now, that is good news. What is the gospel? Well, here's what Darren says. Fundamentally, 
The gospel is the good news that the eternal Son of God entered our sinful world and lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, died as a sacrifice in the place of sinners, rose triumphantly as a sign of sin's defeat and the Father's acceptance. In all this, the Son established a righteousness for those who had no righteousness of their own. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who trust in Christ alone. Jesus' death and resurrection are, and this is a unique phrase to his, are the permanent placeholders for the sinner's right stand before the holy God. What do we learn from Galatians chapter 5, number 25? To pursue salvation by works obligates one to keep the whole law perfectly. For freedom Christ has set us free, verse 1. Stand firm, therefore, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, look the, note the intensive there. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated. You take the route of works, you are obligated to keep the whole law. Number 26. To be justified by works is to fall away from justification by grace through faith. Here is a passage often misunderstood and misinterpreted by our Arminian friends. You are severed from Christ. That is, if you're seeking to be justified by obeying the law and by a right like circumcision, you're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And that is, by the way, a much better understanding, a better translation in this context to bring out the nuance of what he's saying. He's not saying that you fall from grace in the sense that you lose your salvation. He's saying that if you pursue a works salvation agenda, then you fall away from a faith salvation agenda. That's all he's saying there. So if you are severed from Christ, if you're justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace for through the Spirit, by faith. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love, which is his initial foray into where he's about to go as he develops in very great detail the, the indicative uh, implications of the gospel in a multitude of imperatival statements. Uh, number 27, the gospel is that which saves us and sanctifies us. Verse 7, you were running. Not that you ran, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying, present tense, the truth? Uh, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. So the same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sustains us as we move forward in sanctification. And then number 28. To preach a false gospel invites judgment and calls for the strongest condemnation from faithful teachers. Verse 11. But I, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, of course, we all know that uh, more liberal scholars have... Uh, emasculated uh, Paul for making such a statement. But I think Paul is simply wanting us to understand what all is at stake if we begin to walk down a road of works righteousness as opposed to a road of faith in Christ righteousness. What is the gospel? What does it usher into? Tullian Chavidian says it this way, imperatives minus indicatives equals impossibility. I agree with that. When we give commands without saying what God has done for us, we create impossible scenarios for people to live a long obedience in the same direction. Long-term, sustained, gospel-motivated, I like to use the phrase throughout uh, my teaching, gospel gratitude, but long-term, sustained, gospel-motivated obedience can only come from faith in what Christ has already done, not fear in what we must do. Any other kind is unsustainable. And I agree with that. I absolutely agree that, as Tim Keller says, there are two approaches to, to uh, religion and to salvation. Uh, do and done. Do and done. You're saved by what you do or you're saved by what Christ has done for you. However, I want to say with the, the strongest uh, urgency that I can, that though there is the reality and the truth that we're saved by what Christ has done, 
There is a doing that does follow the done. And that's not my theology. That is Paul's theology. And now, finally, and it's amazing, he has spent five chapters and 11 verses in our uh, English Bible uh, hammering, 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 hammering what the gospel is. Now, at the end, he, as is often his pattern, makes the turn and says, All right, in light of all that God has done for you in Christ through the gospel, what then should be your natural, grateful uh, response to all of this glorious truth in the gospel? And what you have minimally, and I probably have shortchanged it, but there's no less than 13 imperatives that flow out of what gospel gratitude would lead to. So the imperatives of the gospel that flow out of the gospel, the imperatives of the gospel that flow out of the indicative of the gospel can be summarized this way. The indicative of the gospel naturally leads to the imperatives of the gospel, chapter 5, verse 13, through chapter 6, verse 20. And I'll just note them very quickly, and then we'll bring our state to a, to a close. But they're in an A-B kind of development, as you see on the screen. A, we will not indulge and pander to the flesh, a word that occurs 14 times in the book of Galatians. Look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Well, Paul, what does the, that look like? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it looks like. Verse uh, 16 and following, but I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to one another. You want some examples of the works of the flesh? Well, here you go. Verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. God, he kind of loads up on that one on the front end, doesn't he? Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. And I warn you. I warned you before that those who do such things, you're lost. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul's very, very clear that in Christ, there's not only a new standing, there is a new creation who is now prepared, as he says in Ephesians, to do good works, which were ordained beforehand by God that we should walk in them. So, in Christ, through the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, we will not indulge and pander to the flesh. Secondly, in love, we will serve others. He's very simple there. In again, verse 13, uh, through love, serve one another. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, letter C, we will not brutalize each other in word or action. But if you bite, verse 15, and devour one another, watch out. That you're not consumed by one another. Letter D, we will live in the realm of the Spirit whom we received when we believed uh, the gospel. By the way, the word Spirit occurs seven times in verse 16 through verse 25. And, of course, we all are familiar. Many of us, hopefully, have memorized uh, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, the outgrowth of the gospel, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against such things. There. There is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. And so if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And, of course, again, in hermeneutics, you teach people to do what I call a mirror reading of the text. Why would Paul tell the Galatians not to be conceited? not to provoke one another, not to envy one another, unless they were becoming conceited, unless they were provoking one another, unless they were envying one another. All behavior, which he would say is absolutely incompatible with the gracious gospel that you have received. Number or letter E, we will engage in spiritual restoration. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, chapter 6, verse 1, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, Keep watch on yourselves, though, lest you too become tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill a new law, a good law, the law of Christ. Letter F, we will be humble, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
uh, letter G, we will serve and do our part in the body of Christ. Let each one test his own work, uh, for each will have to bear his own load. Uh, letter H, we will bless those who teach us. One who has taught the Word must share all good things with the one who teaches. And understand, Paul's listing through here is not exhaustive. He's just being selective and kind of giving us a, a flavor, a taste of what the redeemed life looks like as uh, the natural outgrowth of gospel gratitude. Letter I, we will embrace the principle of sowing and reaping. I'll just jump past that one. Letter J, we will not grow weary in doing good, not because it saves us, but because it is who we are in Christ. Now, let us not grow weary of doing good. And I want to tell you something. I praise God that um, uh, my brother James McDonald did not grow weary in doing good, and he has persevered. I thank you that my young brother, Ben Mandrell, has not grown weary in doing good, but has persevered. I'm so grateful. The same is true of Thabiti, and the same thing is true of Darren, and the same thing is true of Mark. And I pray for me and for you that we will not grow weary in doing good, for in due season, coming back to James's message last night, following perseverance, in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Letter K, we will accept persecution for the cross of Christ. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hands. I think Paul suffered uh, from an eye malady following the appearance of Christ to him on the Damascus Road, and it was that was what he's referring to even in 2 Corinthians 12 as his thorn in the flesh, though he never specifies what it is. Uh, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Letter L, we will boast only in Christ and His cross as a result of gospel gratitude. Be it far, uh, be far, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but Second Corinthians 5:17, a new creation. And then finally, we will pursue peace, mercy, grace and Christ. He ends the letter, verse 17, for from now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. But the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers. Amen. And he brings this letter to a close that is all about the gospel. I came across a couple of years ago a prayer by John Piper that was prayed following a sermon entitled, How the Spirit Does What the Law Could Not Do, November the 11th, 2001. And I thought it would be an appropriate way. Each of us has concluded our message, and Darren will do the same, with a prayer. And so I know most of the time we close our eyes, at least most of us do when we pray. Not everyone does, but most of us do. But this time, uh, keep your eyes open. You'll see the prayer on the screen, and I will read it as the closing benediction to this part of our study today. Oh, Lord Jesus, I am by nature a rebel and find more pleasure in what you made than in you. I am sick and corrupt. Oh, Christ, how plain it is to me now that I need something so much deeper and more powerful and more personal than the law. I know your law is good, but I am flesh and powerless to obey. And so, Lord Jesus, I turn away from the law to you. You are my only hope. I turn away from my own resources and bank on your blood and righteousness for acceptance and on your help for holiness I turn away from all earthly pleasures and take you and you alone as the all-satisfying joy of my life. I renounce Satan and all his ways and all his works. I repent of all the sins I know and those you know and I don't. And, O oh Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on me and open the eyes of my heart to see you as you really are in all of your surpassing beauty. I pray that you would display your glory to me in the gospel. What I see and know of you now, I embrace with all of my heart. I receive you as my Savior and Lord and treasure. And I ask you to dwell mightily in me and make yourself the victor in my life so that when I love my brothers and my enemies, 
as I intend to do with all my heart, the glory will go to you. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.